The Milk Run, Chapter 2, Underway to Parts Unknown. John maneuvered his boat alongside the others to wait for the rest of the squadron to form up. As they sat waiting, the Army NCO came up to the deck next to Wheelhouse to introduce himself and his unit. John could see by his stripes that he was a Master Sergeant, but he didn't quite know the shoulder and matching patch on his beret. Sergeant introduced himself as Master Sergeant Thomas, Jim to his friends, and introduced his unit as part of the 7th Special Forces Group out of Fort Bragg, North Carolina. They were all here for a very special mission to be conducted up north and needed the utmost security to accomplish their mission objectives. He told John and Steve, who was on the other side of the wheelhouse listening, that he wasn't able to give out any details. That would be handled as needed by the higher-ups, the officers. All they could say was that once the squadron got underway, they would be making supply stops along the way coordinated with the Navy and the Air Force. After a few minutes of chatter about home and life in general, the radio squawked and John answered up. The call was from the Mike 8 that the officers were on requesting all boat captains bring their boats alongside long enough for all the boat captains to muster in a well deck of the lead boat for another op briefing. John knew something was up and figured that this would likely clear out some of the dread of not knowing stuff about what lay ahead. John motioned Steve over and told him that he needed to take over the boat while he was on board the Mike 8 with the officers. Steve jokingly said, aye aye captain, and mock saluted John. With that, John let Steve have the wheel and he jumped down into the well deck to let the seaman know he was transferring over and to prepare the fenders and mooring lines. Sergeant stood by and motioned to his squad to stay out of the way. Once all the other boats were away from the pier and maneuvering around trying not to hit one another, first boat started laying alongside the officer's boat to transfer the captains one by one. As Steve maneuvered their boat alongside and the lines were secured, John jumped across and waved Steve off. They would make the transfer back once John radioed that he was ready. John had his portable radio on as did all the other rest of the captains. John was pretty nervous as all of this clandestine briefing star was starting to look like one of those Tom Clancy novels. As he stood around with the other captains, he tried to ask if anyone had any scuttlebutt about what was going on but they were all in the dark as much as John was. Once all the captains had reported to the chief as president accounted for, he had everyone gathered together to listen to the officers. First up was the army officer, a major by rank insignia. His XO was a captain who stood nearby. As the boat gently rocked in the flat waters of the cove, Major Steuben introduced himself and told everyone about what they were ordered to do. He explained that this mission was top secret, need to know, and compartmentalized. Their first leg of the journey would be to an isolated beach up the coast in Saudi Arabia to unload special to unload special equipment and ammunition for the mission. A lot of it. This would also be a refueling spot for the boats, as well as take it on stores for the rest of the trip. That next leg would also be divided by a couple of stops as needed to take on fuel and water. Their ultimate goal was Iraq for his unit. This was to be a clandestine infiltration mission designed to gather intelligence about Saddam Hussein's infrastructure and military capabilities at the border of Kuwait and Iraq. The mission of the boat squadron was to get them and their equipment as close as possible without alerting the Iraq Coast Guard. The Navy would drop them all off at a secluded beachhead already scouted out by Navy SEALs. This location would be given out when they were on the last leg of the journey to avoid compromise. As everything was offloaded, the Navy boats would quietly exfiltrate the area to avoid any patrol boats while soldiers humped it over the border from the landing site. John thought, and likely all the other boat captains were thinking the same thing, how do you keep a Mike boat quiet with all its small diesels and dropping bow ramps? I guess they would figure it out along the way. 
John knew that the boats were relatively quiet when moving dead slow, but the clanking of bow ramp chains in the dead of the night would be pretty distinctive. He would have to get with Chief and Steve to see what they could come up with. Once the briefing was over, the Chief gave the okay for everyone to get back to their boats. He gathered them around as the officers left the well deck, told them he was proud of them and knew he could count on to get this done. He would get together with them before the next stop and put together some ideas about muting the exhaust noise and chains rattling on the bow ramps so they could work on that during the next leg of the journey. When the chief asked him if they had any questions, John asked why they were picked for such a long journey in open boats. Chief said that from what he was told, it wasn't much more than what they already knew. The reason they were going was because the Army didn't have enough assets in the op here to handle as big of an operation. And they didn't want any of the Navy's big amphibious ships to be involved because of the secrecy needed. If any of the LPDs or LHAs were to show up in the north all of a sudden, every one of the Gulf states would know about it and word would go straight to Baghdad. The Pentagon figured it was better to set up a long-range trip with small assets from Bahrain to keep things as secretive as possible. They already knew approximately how long this trip would take and factored that in. That way, the troops could slip in unnoticed, hopefully. The idea was to recon the Kuwait-Iraq border for a possible invasion force if needed. That was all the chief knew and told his captains to keep that information to themselves. No sense scaring the junior enlisted. They broke up and started calling their boats for the transfer back. Once John was back aboard his boat, he took over from Steve and told him to be thinking about ways to muffle the exhaust engines and get, a, get with the seamen to figure out how to way to muffle the chain noise while operating the bow ramp. John said, I can't tell you why, I just need it, need it done. Steve gave his friend a quizzical look and said, no problem, boss. Once everyone was back on board their boats and signaled the lead boat they were ready, they started heading out of the cove and maneuvered into travel formation, an inline staggered formation with all the boats maintaining line of sight with one another. John wondered what the next plan was, as he wasn't prepared to run all night with just a four-man crew and only one other coxswain on board. As the squadron headed off into the gulf, they were all probably wondering the same thing. By late afternoon, as all the boats started settling into a routine, the radio squawked again. John picked up the headset and announced himself. It was the chief. He told John to set up a night watch for his boat as would all of the other boats. The squadron would continue to run north at the coast until 000 hours and then, then stop and they would drop anchor for the night. A roving boat, a roving boat watch would need to be set on each boat to be on the lookout for any small local boats that might attempt to investigate them. If sighted, each boat had to be ready to weigh anchor quickly and move out to avoid being seen up close. John affirmed the orders and said he would see to it. John called out for Steve and told him, and told him, had him find the two seamen and the master sergeant. As they gathered around a wheelhouse, John detailed what he had just been given over the radio. He told Steve to set up a watch bill for the night after midnight and let him see it. Sergeant Thomas volunteered his squad to help with guard duty as they weren't doing anything anyway except busy work cleaning equipment and weapons. John agreed and told Steve to get with the sergeant to integrate his troops with ours to set that up. Once they left to carry all that out, John thought sarcastically, this is just getting better and better. Now they had to set up security lookouts to try and get some sleep while anchored offshore. This reminded John of times when he had been assigned, he'd been assigned to the big Hayes Gray Navy ships, of being on battle stations for hours and hours at a time, having to sleep on station. That wasn't fun then, and he wasn't looking forward to doing that on his mission. He thought this will be the longest battle station period he will ever have in his relatively short career to date. Not an accomplishment he wanted to tell anyone someday, if he would be allowed to. 
John kept the boat on course while his crew worked on lookout watch stations. All he knew for, for now was to keep the boat on a certain compass heading until told otherwise. After about a half hour, Steve came back with the watch list and hours split up between the seamen and soldiers. John told Steve that with this many hands to stand watches, they could stand up to two hours at a time to give everyone a little sleep. Steve agreed. John asked Steve to take the wheel as he needed to make a head call. After he finished pissing over the side, John decided to check out the boat to make sure everything was still shipshape for the long voyage ahead. As he walked the well deck, he chatted with his seamen, some of the soldiers, to see how everyone was doing. So far, the seasickness wasn't too awful bad. John assured them they would get their sea legs before long. When he jumped back into the well house to relieve Steve, he asked if he had come up with any ideas about mitigating the boat noise they talked about. Steve said the only way he knew to muffle the engine exhaust was to load down the back of the boat heavy enough to sink the exhaust ports below the waterline. But he worried that this might affect the angle of the bow ramp once lowered. John thought this might be a good idea if the tide was in their favor. This would only work at high tide to avoid the boat crews from, boat's crews from digging into the beach sand underneath. John also thought that the only way to beat that would be to float the boat in at high tide with the engines off to give the boat a better silent approach. Trouble with that was the surf could bring the boat in too fast and cause the boat to run aground and not be able to get back out again with a lot of noise. He thought the only way to manage that would have to be another boat tied off on a stern cleat, pull the boats off the sand once they offloaded. This would require a lot of coordination with the other boats and one of the Mike gates as they had more power. The question was whether they could handle it quietly. Even if a boat, even if a boat floated in silently, getting them back out would be a bit noisy. John decided to broach the idea with the chief to see if he had any ideas. John got on the radio and asked to speak to Chief Armstrong. When the chief answered the radio, John told him that he had an idea for a silent beach landing, wanted to discuss it with him, but not over the radio. Chief Armstrong agreed to hear him out and would make arrangements to bring his boat alongside to discuss it. Once they, tied, once they were tied up alongside, John passed on the idea about the silent beaching and the subsequent pull-off. Chief got silent for a moment and said it might work, but he had to run it by the major and lieutenant first. Chief Armstrong would radio an affirmative or a negative over the radio once he had an answer. He thanked John and his crew for the idea and would let him know soon. John pulled away from the chief's boat and settled back into place in formation again to wait for an answer. Steve asked how it went, and John told him Chief would get back to him after consulting with the officers. All they could do was wait and keep moving up the coast. As dust settled over the water... John pulled up his kefia up around his face. On the Gulf, when the evening breezes pick up, the desert sands blow across the relatively still waters of the Gulf and leave a sandy haze in the air. Without something to cover your face, sand will get into your nose and mouth and leave you dry, gritty, and thirsty, something they all learned when they first arrived in country. As the sun set over the horizon on the, on the Gulf on another day, John thought how peaceful the waters could be if there wasn't any war to worry about over the next horizon. As John lay dreaming, daydreaming about being at peace while piloting his boat up the coast, his crew and soldiers were starting to break out MREs and heaters for their evening meal on a wet well deck, gently rocking in the water. Just another evening on the Gulf, John thought as he watched from his perch on a wheelhouse. Might as well enjoy the view and relax a little bit. Who knows what tomorrow will bring?